a blessing. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher fitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Amen. Um, this parsha is called Emor, and it uh, is chapters 21 through chapter 24 in Leviticus. And chapter 21 and 22 deal with, just as we've learned, oh, well, oh, sorry, we're going to be on page 823. That's actually where I'd like to start, 823. So chapter 21 and 22, um, Talk about now not only the le- what it takes to remit for an, uh, for any Israelite to remain to be in a state of holiness, but that the priests, that Aaron and his sons, have to actually uh, pursue an even higher standard of this quality called holiness, so that they can serve in the sanctuary. And um, I was rereading, and maybe we'll talk more about this next time, uh, this book, Leviticus as a Literature, by Mary Douglas, which we've studied in the past. Have you encountered this book? No. Oh. Um, I'll just say it, I'll tell Steve. Mary Douglas was a famous anthropologist. She just died a few years ago. And after she retired, she pursued her interest in the Bible but from the perspective of a brilliant anthropologist who's very respectful. She's not there to tear it down. She's actually there to, she wants to show how, what magnificent ancient literature the Torah is. So she has this kind of mind that takes in more, it's a great book, it's a great book. It's dense, but it's a great book, and it's a... Leviticus is literature? Yeah, mm mm-hmm. And... uh, what Mary Douglas does is she examines, hello, so glad you're here. Take a homage. Nice to see you again. That's a heavy backpack. Well, whatever you want. Oh, you could go in the library. It's really pleasant in there. Sure. Bye. See you later. Uh, this is we're on page eight twenty three. Thanks. Um, everybody, this is. Rochelle, that's right. I knew it was R. I was going with Renee. This is Rochelle, who I met recently. This is uh, Marka and Gail, Nancy. What would you like to do today? You'll be Ted today. Uh, Oh, Velvel. Velvel. Steve. So, Mary Douglas. uh, describes in this sort of meta theory about the structure of the book of Leviticus as a literary 
just as we've discussed how the um, how in the way of analogical thinking that everything's an analog for something else, the way the animal sacrifices were a cosmological map and the um, that everything is symbolic of something else, the human form, um, that even the structure of the book of Leviticus is made on a symbolic, symbolic template so that it's also taking us through into the Holy of Holies. I don't want to explore that more now, but because uh, I was reading and I really want to just sort of remember it more, but it was really fun. So given that, I thought we'd focus on chapter 23 today, which stands by its, its sort of self-contained chapter that describes the cycle of holidays, of holy days. And take our time and, and see what we want to uh, see where it takes us. So I'd like to do that today. So we're at the bottom of page 823. The Eternal One spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, These are my fixed times, the fixed times of the Eternal, which you shall proclaim as sacred occasions. Mikra e Kodesh. Turn the page. Uh, and then, of course, the first sacred day to remember is the, is the continual one. On six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there shall be a Shabbat of complete rest, Shabbat Shabbaton, Mikra Kodesh, a holy time. Uh, no, you shall do no work. It shall be a Shabbat of yod throughout everywhere you live, throughout your settlement. So as always, we start with Shabbat, or we end with Shabbat. Uh, again, that is... Shabbat and seven is the theme of the Torah when laws are being uh, laid out. Shabbat is always going to be in there. And then, these are the set times of the eternal, the sacred occasions, which you shall celebrate each at their appointed time. Hi, Karen. Isn't it beautiful out? Page 824. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, there shall be a Passover offering to the Eternal. Okay, so first let's take note that in the Torah, Nisan, the springtime month, is called the first month. Rosh Hashanah is, becomes the new year later. Uh, it's not the new year in the Torah. What really happens in, in the what really happens to the Jewish calendar is that we have two new years, one uh, at the full moon, one at the month of the spring equinox, and the other at the beginning of the month of the fall equinox, and you know directly opposite each other on on the on the calendar. Uh, and the fourteenth day of the month, of course, because these are moons is the full moon. Because in a 29-day cycle, the moon wax, wanes, waxes for two weeks, and then is full, and then wanes, and that's how the, that's, that's how the month works. 
And so at twilight, Bain Harbaim. What are you being reminded of? <laughs> Isn't there a button? There's a... Oh, don't worry, it'll stop soon. Good job. And on, and on the fifth, so that's Passover Eve, and on the 15th day of that month is Yodhevave's Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, so those got kind of mushed together in the course of Jewish history. But here they appear to be two separate events, one right after the other. Uh, and uh, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day you shall celebrate a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations. Seven days you shall make offerings by fire to the eternal. The seventh day shall also be a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations. Uh, one of the things I like to talk about when, we encounter this, when I encounter this chapter is thinking about the continuity and the in, in amazing changes that have happened in Judaism over three millennia um, with Passover. And also we have more instructions for Passover elsewhere in the Torah. In Exodus it says, and you shall eat, you shall roast it whole that night, the lamb, and you shall eat it with matzah and bitter herbs. So the Torah has different descriptions of the festival in different places, and they all sort of come together. Um, but so they begin with the beginning of the year, Passover, not Rosh Hashanah. And then it says in, ver in, in verse 9, The Eternal One spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelites and say to them. Now this is interesting. When you enter the land that I am giving to you, and you reap its harvest, you shall bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. And he shall elevate the sheaf before Yudhevavhe for acceptance in your behalf. The priest shall elevate it on the day after the Sabbath. Uh, on the day that you elevate the sheaf, you shall offer as a burnt offering to the Eternal a lamb of the first year without blemish. The meal offering with it shall be two-tenths of a measure of choice flour with oil mixed in. And the note says a typical offering was one-tenth of a measure. Uh, in an offering, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the eternal, and the libation with it shall be of wine, a quarter of a hin. Until that very day, until you have brought the offering of your God, you shall eat no bread or parched grain or fresh ears. It is a law for all time throughout the ages and all your settlements. And from the day on which you bring the sheaf of elevation offering, the day after the Sabbath, you shall count off seven weeks. So when you bring the Omer, Hatznufa, Omer is the word for sheep. That's why we call it counting the Omer, which is the period we're in now. Uh, they must be complete. You must count until the day after the seventh week, 50 days. 
Then you shall bring an offering of new grain to the Eternal. And you shall bring from your settlements two loaves of bread as an elevation offering, and each shall be made of two-tenths of a measure of choice flour baked after leavening as first fruits to the Eternal. With the bread you shall present as burnt offerings to the Eternal seven yearling lambs without blemish, one bull of the herd and two rams with their meal offerings and libations, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the Eternal. You shall offer, also offer one he-goat as a sin offering and two yearling lambs as a sacrifice of well-being. The priest shall elevate these, the two lambs, together with the bread of first fruits as an offering, elevation offering before the Eternal. They shall be holy to the Eternal for the priest. On that same day you shall hold a celebration. It shall be a sacred occasion for you. You shall not work at your occupations. This is a law for all time in all your settlements throughout the ages. Let's pause there. Because there's so much about this that doesn't quite match up with how we practice Judaism for the last 2,000 years. We haven't got that many livestock. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> now, I was reading that one of the reasons... Now, four different times in the Torah, the cycle of holidays is described. And each time it's a little different. But this one, in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus is dedicated to what hap- to the offerings you're supposed to bring to the sanctuary. So each of these holidays describes the offering that you need to bring. So it's less focused, for example, on um, the matzah and the bitter herbs. And tell it, the Passover doesn't even say, because you were freed from Egypt. Right? So you can think of this, especially as kind of a manual for what to bring to the, uh, to the Mishkan, to the temple, as opposed to um, other descriptions which have more context. Does that make sense? But the real anomaly in this, which some of us are familiar with, is that it's, it finishes this, this description of, uh, of the um, Passover offering, and then it jumps into this saying in verse 10, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when you enter the land that I'm giving to you and you reap its harvest, you shall bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. It has to say that because they're in the wilderness right now. Um, but one presumes, most many people presume that these texts were written when the children of Israel were already living in the land and were retrojecting to their to their you know, formative history. Uh, on the, and when do you do this? On the day after the Sabbath. Mimachorat HaShabbat. What does that mean? What Sabbath? Right? It's completely unclear. Some of you know, right? Do you, I know there are debates about when does the counting of the Omer start? When right. Does Shabbat, right. Passover end. Right. Right. A lot of obsession with calendar. Of course, they wanted the rabbis were yeah, were, right. were trying to create a, co- a a consistent, coherent Jewish calendar, and this doesn't provide the answer, because it appears that the time that you do this is as soon as you bring the first sheaf, as soon as it's, you're able to, to harvest the. Um, the, the wheat. 
And so that might not coincide with Passover. Today, and for, since the rabbis determined it, we always start counting the Omer on the second night of Passover. That is a complete rabbinic uh, innovation because the Torah never says to do that because they're following the agricultural cycle and it appears that after Shabbat, you would do this ceremony and start counting. Um, and that would mean that the um, that would mean that the fiftieth day would always be the day after Shabbat, right? If you start counting on the on that day, which is the first, and it'll be the eighth. Yeah, it would always be a Sunday. It would always be a Sunday, yeah. Um, and it has nothing to do with Passover or with the the Jewish calendar per se. And at the end of those seven, during those seven weeks, it says you count, you count off. And at the end of the seven weeks, uh, you bring an offering of the new grain, which is understood to be the barley. Um, uh, and isn't that right, Karen? No, the new grain would be the wheat. Oh, so they ha- harvested the barley and then... I think the barley... Wait. I can never keep this straight because I'm not a farmer. <laughs> well, the barley's first, right? So I thought maybe the... So they're eating barley during the... The wheat, wheat while the wheat is uh, ripening? Something like that. Something like that. Be that as may, there's a second crop of grain that's ripening across those seven weeks. And uh, in fact, in, in Hebrew, as well as I'm sure in other languages where, where the wheat was the staff of life. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's the idea, that the barley is first to... The barley is the early crop. It's the early crop, and mm-hmm. that's what you're eating while you're waiting, waiting for, the, for the wheat. Wheat to ripen. Wheat is really the elevated grain. Mm-hmm. Barley is the more um, coarse grain. Right, like a coarse bread. You can't really make bread out of barley. Mm-hmm. We can make matzah out of barley. <laughs> How does it taste? <laughs> Have you made it? Oh, no. um. But it doesn't rise. There's no, you know, there's it doesn't. No it has no gluten. Yeah. Right. Right. So, I mean, just like for the names for different kinds of rain in in the Middle East, Hebrew has several names for the first rains, the gentle rains, the middle rains, the later rains. You know, it's like because that like that ain't just just we just call it rain, right? We might call it drizzle, or but it doesn't have a seasonal kind of. It's not as a, It's like rain. Um, and the same goes for um, the wheat. There's the first wheat, the early wheat, the the later wheat, and it's like I was just learning a little about this. Yeah, I mean the barley too is less about eating the barley; it's more about feeding the livestock and making the beer. Right? Oh, making, right, the beer. That's you, right. You can't work the harvest without a glass of beer at the end of the day. <laughs> and we know that fermented. We know that from fermented fermenting was one of the chief activities of, of these, these cultures, absolutely. And the, um, and the barley itself, because barley is, is very reactive, so that the yeast, it's really like you'll make your leavening out of barley. You will? Yeah, I mean, that's why it makes beer. It ferments really fast. Oh, so then you could take some starter from barley for your wheat? I think so, but that, that's part that of makes the process sense. of that makes sense, because uh, at Passover we're supposed to eat the unleavened bread, but now at, at, when we get to Shavuot, 50 days later, we're supposed to 
specifically eat leavened loaves of new wheat bread. Um, however, the problem here is that what do we think of as the festival of Shavuot? What are we marking? What are we? The receiving of the Torah, right? The giving and receiving of the Torah. And here, there's no mention of it. Right. Nowhere in the Torah is there any mention of a holiday for receiving the Torah. I know we've talked about this before, but I find it always interesting and worthwhile to talk about again, because as a Reconstructionist, I love these sort of like model examples of how Judaism evolves. Um, so, the, 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 in this chapter in Leviticus, the Omer, and counting the Omer, so tomorrow evening is the 33rd day of the Omer, right, isn't it? Saturday evening. I, I mean Saturday evening, that's what I meant. Um, so we're right now, Friday's 32, 31. Today's the 30th. We're on the 30th day of the Omer right now. Right, we're on the 30th day of the Omer and counting. Um, Saturday night after, will be the 33rd day of the Omer, Lagba Omer. And then, um, and then on um, May 30th will be the 50th, which is in the evening of May 30th, which is Shavuot. Um, so there are all these offerings to give when you bring the, and Shavuot's other name is Chag HaBikurim, the, har, the festival of the first fruits. So uh, you, you start this, you get the barley sheaf, and you raise it up, and you start counting, and you're watching the grain ripen, and then the time, and they know that over that period of seven weeks, which is that core seven again, 49, and on the 50th day, it's time for the celebration. So we'll talk more about that after we read on a little bit. Is there a significance to Lagba Omer? I know the modern... Let's talk about Lagba Omer. It's not really in the middle, right? It's not the 25th. Nope. No, we've we've speculated on this. (laughs) Have you all heard of Lagba Omer? Um, Did you celebrate it at your day school? Um, I don't... Don't remember? remember. Because at my day school... It was the day when we had when we got to go outside and have our parent uh, student teacher baseball game. <laughs> oh, I remember that. That was. Used to go, there was a park next to us on Eastern Avenue. We used to go there. That would have been Lagba Omer, <laughs> a Jewish Jewish sort of field day. Right. Um, and I was telling the kids this, and uh, Mr. Plotnik, S. Maurice Plotnik, was the headmaster of my day school. He was from England, and. You know, he was a very proper Englishman. And on Lagba Omer, we'd have this, this was so important to me. The teachers would play ball with us, <laughs> against us. And uh, he would get up at the plate, and he held the bat like a cricket bat. <laughs> and he would, he was good at it. He would like the pitch, and he'd smack it. But he'd be standing there, you know, like, like this. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, let's talk about Lagba Omer a little bit. Um, I like my theory. I've given it a lot of thought and done a lot of done a fair amount of research 
to come up with this theory. There are all kinds of stories that we mark Lagba Omer because in the days of the Roman oppression in the first century and the second century, Rabbi Akiva and his students that studying the Torah had been outlawed, and so they would uh, go out into the woods to study Torah. But to cover for themselves, they'd carry bows and arrows. And if the Roman legionnaires happened to be looking for them in the woods to make sure no one was, they could hide their books and pick up their bows and arrows. And uh, uh, that was a fine Roman activity. <laughs> so that story, complete Bubba Misa, right? Completely made up, but it's such a great story because for me, it highlights the countercultural nature of Judaism. That what did the boys do to be bad? They, they studied Torah, you know, which was actually, a, which at, was, and to this day in Jewish culture continues to be, the mark of Jewish masculinity. What is the height of Jewish masculinity? It's not being a gladiator. Right? And it's not being a great marksman. The height of Jewish masculinity um, is being a Torah scholar, which is a whole fascinating subject about, uh, uh, to totally interesting to me. Um, since the advent of Zionism, that picture of Jewish masculinity got uh, turned on its head in, in a certain way because being because uh, you needed to be like a soldier farmer to be a, a man now in the Zionist narrative. And women too, uh, to a large degree, were included in that, even though uh, it's pretty clear that sexism kept them in their place. But uh, uh, so that has changed some in the 20th century, through the 20th century. But still, the historic nature of Jewish masculinity is all tied up in that story we defined ourselves against the Hellenistic um, glorification of the human form, of physical, uh, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Prowess, that was the word, prowess. None of that is a story. In fact, there's another story, a very famous story about uh, Reish Lakish, who was considered to be, a in the Talmud, was a, essentially a, a burglar, brigand, tough guy who uh, meets Rabbi Yochanan and is transformed by his encounter with Rabbi Yochanan. I want to study these stories sometime. So that kind of story about the origin of, and it, that it happened on Lagba Omer, another story is that there was a great plague afflicting Rabbi Akiva's students and for some reason the plague lifted on Lagba Omer. Uh, but when you look at the historical sources, Lagba Omer has no, is never mentioned until 13th century. Never mentioned. It doesn't seem to exist. I've come to the conclusion that Lagba Omer is a Kabbalistic holiday. Because what happens is that the Zohar, which tells, which, which emerges in 
southern France and Spain in the uh, late 13th century, uh, which attributes itself to being written by Shimon Bar Yochai from the second, from the, uh, second century. Uh, there's no evidence that the Zohar was written in the second century. It's like most scholars think it's the classic way of um, attributing your work to antiquity so that it gains a lot of gravitas, you know. And so um, Shimon Bar Yochai is, is considered to be the author of the Zohar, and Moses de Leon is the person who reveals it to the world. Uh, so um, Shimon Bar Yochai is the hero of the Zohar, and a myst- he's mentioned all over the Talmud, uh, um, and clearly is a, a powerful being in the Talmud. But he becomes the hero of the Zohar. And the mystics, the Kabbalists, take the counting of the Omer, this agricultural counting, which the rabbis had recast as the, the 49 days of journeying from liberation from Egypt to Mount Sinai, and gave it an additional layer of meaning. And they said it's not only a journey of the children of Israel to Mount Sinai, but it's a mystical journey from up through all the levels of the tree of life till you get to Shavuot when God speaks to us directly. So it's a mystical journey as well as a journey of liberation as well as an agricultural journey. That makes sense, right? And so in the mystical journeying, there's a very specific way of counting, which some of us may be familiar with, where there are seven attributes or sfirot, and each week of the seven weeks is devoted to that attribute. And within that week, the seven of the seven attributes each becomes part of that week. So, for example, which week are we in? It's the fourth week, and so we're in uh, uh, Netzach. Right? Chesed, Gevura, Tiferet, Netzach. No, 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 we're in Hod now. We're in the fifth week. We're in Hod right now. And if it's the 30th day, then it's the second, one to seven, eight, it's the third day. The 33rd day would be the fifth day of the fifth day. Right, so it's the second day. Right, so, so it's the second day of the fifth week, which means the day would be called Gevura Shebahod, the, the, the attribute of Gevura as it exists within the attribute of Hod, or the attribute of discipline and strength as it exists within the attribute of Hod, which might be called majesty, or there's lots of, it's really complicated. <laughs> um, however, the 33rd day, as Karen said, is Hod Shebahod, which means majesty within majesty. So my theory is that the 33rd day in the Kabbalistic counting was considered to be, you know, really an incredibly high day and is therefore the day that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai died. It's his yard site. We have no information about his yard site. 
So Lagba Omer becomes Shimon Barachah's Yortzite because it's, he's the hero, the mystical hero, and this is the day of majesty within majesty, and it becomes a special day. It becomes a special day when in the land of Israel, Jews make a pilgrimage to Mount Meron, which is the highest mountain in the Galilee, where the purported grave of Shimon Bar Yochai is. And so it becomes its own kind of mystical pilgrimage holiday, unlike the pilgrimages to Jerusalem. But they're going to a holy mountain. They're, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, this, this, so um, Lagba Omer, I think, emerges as a mystical holiday and then gets lots of stories attached to it to link it back to um, the more distant past, uh, tied in with Shimon Bar Yochai. That's my best theory. Um, Where does the capitalism fit in? The capitalism of Lag Bomer? Well, you said that it, it developed as a, a capitalistic response. Kabbalistic. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so well. That's really great. Kabbalistic and capitalistic. I see a... A song coming on. <laughs> oh, that's really great. No, totally Kabbalistic. Okay. Totally coming out of the fact that the Zohar became the most beloved Torah commentary of the Middle and Late Middle Ages um, and uh, uh, was considered to be a holy book. Uh, one thing that... so. Where the custom of the counting of the Omer being a time of vigil comes from is not entirely clear to me. Because there's customs that you're not supposed to get married. Men don't shave. There's this like, there's, you, don't, you don't cut your fingernails, that's right. Are you doing that? Um, Huh? No, no, no. <laughs> you don't get so all of these mourning customs are associated with walking the Omer, and uh, then the thirty-third day is it all complete break with that a total celebration. The thirty-third day, go outside, yeah. celebrate, and then some Jews follow a custom where they resume the mourning practices after Lagba Omer. Others don't. Even though some Orthodox Jews will tell you that these practices have the power of like uh, comprehensive Jewish law, they're actually practiced differently all over the Jewish world, which fits a custom that doesn't emerge until you know, the, the mid to late Middle Ages. Right? But um, I wonder where those mourning customs come from. What the vigil is. Is it, maybe it has ancient origins. Maybe it was people like sympathetically waiting while the grain ripens. You know, that makes sense to me. I don't really. like the beer solution. Because it takes about 33 days for that first batch to be Does it? Yeah. So you're waiting. It's exciting. <laughs> my, my, my other theory, again, completely 
completely just like a hypothesis, just like, is that in Christian Europe, in the Middle Ages, a lot of Jewish practices emerge in response to what's happening in the big world. So Purim masquerades are, happen right around the time of um, Carnival, right? Uh, it's just the natural thing. You know what I mean? It's just like Hanukkah becoming like the Jewish Christmas in our country at this time. It's like none of that stuff existed uh, 80, 100 years ago. And yet now Hanukkah is like holy <laughs> Moses, you know. <laughs> um, and so my theory is that Lagba Omer happens always right around May Day. And look at the practices of Lagba Omer. Bonfires. Outdoor revelry and games. I don't know. Sounds right to me. So that's another of my favorite theories. Was that between that intersection of Kabbalistic uh, practice and the Jews wanting their own May Day, out came a, a new celebration. I really like that theory. That's, that's my favorite theory. Uh, I mean, I try to have it be sort of based, reasonably <laughs> fact-based uh, suppositions. Okay. Uh, but back in ancient times, the rabbis still had the problem of, of that there was no link between Passover and the Omer and Shavuot. Uh, and so, in this very convoluted but brilliant way, and what is a big debate in the Talmud, the rabbi said what it means when it says on the day after the Shabbat is Shabbat can also refer to a holy day. So that means on the day after the first day of Passover, the Seder, the first day, which is a holy day, you start counting. And there were accounts in the Talmud of one sect of Jews in the, in the Talmud, say around the first century, B.C., right around that time, there's these very vivid accounts of one sect, the Pharisees, going out into the field, because this is their interpretation, on the day after Passover, cutting the sheep and lifting it up, and the Sadducees jeering at them and standing on the side saying, this is a bunch of bunk, you know, and I'm sure they said worse words than that. You know, what are you doing? It doesn't say that in the Torah. So this is a matter of great debate. The reason we follow this tradition is because ultimately the rabbinic tradition became normative, right? And uh, the, others, the other practices disappeared except for Christianity, which has its own thing. Christianity adopted the rabbinic understanding of the counting, which makes sense given that Jesus is in dialogue with what he calls the Pharisees, which was, the, uh, which was one of the names for the rabbis, because he is a Pharisee, right? He knows their way. Anyway, Christianity takes the 50 days, begins counting at Easter, which, remember, Easter's name is Pascha in, in Spanish, um, and because it, it's their Passover and Jesus is the lamb whose blood saves us. Uh, and they start counting 49 days, and the 50th day is a day called Pentecost. 
which is the day when, because on Easter is when Jesus is, um, in the Holy Week is when Jesus is crucified and then uh, resurrected. But on the 50th day, according to the Christian counting, is the day when the apostles experienced Jesus' return and the Holy Spirit sort of, it took, and so the, you can see how the Christians, in my opinion, were following the template, because what happens on the 50th day after the Jews are liberated from uh, Sinai in the rabbinic counting? God comes down to the mountain and they all hear God speak. Right, so it's really parallel. It's really interesting to me. So, by with this sleight of hand, the rabbis make that Shabbat, which is undated and unnamed, only attached to the actual ripening of the grain, into being the day after pass uh, after the first day of Passover, and therefore they can now count and come to a date called the 6th of Sivan, which is the 50th day, and say, that's when Shavuot happens. Because it doesn't say anywhere where Shavuot happens. It just happens seven weeks after you start counting. And now Shavuot is linked to Passover in the most visceral way. Uh, because you leave Egypt and you travel until you reach the Holy Mountain. And they have to do lots of more shenanigans to make it the 6th of Sivan, because it says in Exodus, when they got to the mountain, it was on the first day of the third month since leaving Egypt. And again, there's so much debate in the Talmud about what that means, but they managed to do this and this, and, and, but they're not doing it for no reason. They're doing it for a very beautiful reason. Because, they, because Shavuot, which is the festival of first fruits in the Torah, the rabbis realized, wait, we need a festival for the Torah, for receiving the Torah, because it's not an event that's commemorated anywhere in the Bible. And for them, the Torah was the, the, the first fruits, right? The Torah was the vehicle of God's connection to Israel, God, Torah, and Israel. And so I love how they did that, that they then made Shavuot into the holiday of Mount Sinai and gave it, whereas, whereas Passover already had historical connections in the Torah to leaving Egypt, and Sukkot also had uh, historical connections to, uh, in the Torah it says, and you shall dwell in these booths to remember the temporary shelters you dwelt in in the wilderness and how God's cloud protected you. Uh, Shavuot has no relationship until the rabbis invent it. And so Shavuot is also the poor cousin, in terms of the three pilgrimage festivals, of um, Passover and Sukkot, which each last one full week, and Shavuot's just one day, and so on. But because it does say in the Torah that on this day called Chag HaBikurim, the festival of the first fruits, you are to take your basket of first fruits and loaves and bring them to the priest and say, you know, I was a wandering Aramean and now here I am in the good land that the Lord has given to me. It's a pilgrimage festival uh, and it lays out in here all the 
offerings you're supposed to make. Um, they added on to that and made it a pilgrimage festival that also sanctifies and celebrates standing at Mount Sinai. And I like telling this story uh, because I find it very interesting because nothing about this about Shavuot is in the Torah. It's a, Shavuot is a rabbinic creation that makes the Jewish calendar even richer. Right? Uh, it's a, it links. So now we can walk. Now all we have is the book. Right? We're not living in the land anymore. We're in diaspora. So we're not watching the grain anymore. Right? We're not, and instead, we are reliving sacred Jewish history through the book. We're not actually cutting the grain anymore in diaspora. And so the rabbis give us the tools we need to keep our tradition vital and alive when we're not in our homeland anymore. It's brilliant. And so we get to take a symbolic journey of counting from liberation to Mount Sinai, and we're walking in the footsteps of our ancestors, even though we don't live in the land, even though we're not farming there anymore. I find it to be really brilliant in that way, um, making our trip virtual, as it were. The Zionists who created the early kibbutzim wanted nothing to do with this. They thought this was narshkite from the Gullus. You know, they thought it was nonsense from, from uh, living in exile because they were, ra- they were revolutionaries. So they were out with the old and they were trying to reach back to when we were truly to the golden age, right? When we were on our land. And so they throw all that stuff out and instead make it the festival of first fruits again because they're farming again on the land and this, the, 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 the uh, cycle of growing seasons is, fits right in with this. And so many secular, intense secular communist kibbutzim, they, they, they have parades. They still do on the kibbutz. They get all the tractors out and the kids all put on um, wreaths of flowers and carry baskets and they parade around the kibbutz and they, it's like a whole thing. Shavuot becomes an agricultural festival again on the kibbutz. Um, the agricultural overtones, under, undercurrent of Shavuot never leaves Judaism. Even in diaspora, it's customary to uh, bring um, greenery and flowers into the synagogue for, um, for the festival. So it's still there, but only as a kind of a vestige. Any dairy. Any dairy. Well, the dairy part, I don't have a good... Yeah. I, I do not have a theory about the dairy part. Anybody? It's customary to eat dairy on Shavuot. I can't for the life of me. Eastern Europe, and that's what they had. Eastern it's, Europe? It was the, so it was... It was Judith, and that she... Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what... I know, that's the story that gets attached to it. Yeah. But why no, tell the story of Judith and Holofernes at Shavuot? I don't think it's set at Shavuot time. I have to check. The Book of Ruth is set at Shavuot time, and we're going to talk about that a little. But there's no cheesecake in... The cheesecake gives a week's worth of pleasure in one day. (laughs) That's right. It expands the pleasure of the Shavuot. So, but, you know, because I love good theories, I would love to get enough, like, possible sources besides what seems to be 
a story retrojected again. You know, why do we eat dairy? Well, Judith fed curds and cheese to Holofernes before he cut, she cut his head off. It's like, what's that got to do with it, you know? But it's Eastern Europe. It's not a Sephardic. I don't think it's a Sephardic custom. So I just imagine it's Poland. Nothing. It's springtime. Yeah, it's exactly. still early spring. So you have your cheese and so you. Have, your, yeah, and that's. And it's time for a festival. Sour cream. That's what the luck is. Oh, right. That too. That too. Well, so you have oily food on uh, Hanukkah, and yeah, I bet it's related to springtime. You know, as the baker, I'd always say, well, it's time for brioche. You, know, you make your challah really rich. You know, you really butter, rich. You put butter in it. And I wonder if there are other customs from the Pale Settlement, from the Christian populations that that lines up with. I wonder. I want to find that out. But I bet you're right, Karen. So, um, so but the dairy, I still don't, I haven't satisfied myself. Uh, so now... So, so there's that beautiful transformation into Shavuot as part of the Jewish calendar as opposed to part of the, of the growing season calendar, which allows it to become, again, our sacred calendar uh, when, when we're not working the land anymore. And, uh, and also ties the giving of the Torah into the leaving from Egypt, which doesn't exist unless we have that connection which the rabbis create. So we're on verse 22. So even though they, they created yeah. that whole narrative around, but the, the day itself is marked in the Torah as a day of, right, the Shavuot or someplace? Marked as a day of what? As a day of no, not working. Okay. Yeah, right here. Right, okay. It says in verse 21, here's what happens. The priest shall elevate these, verse 20, the two lambs, together with the bread of first fruits as an elevation offering before the eternal. Uh, they shall be holy to the eternal for the Kohen. Uh, and the, the, the loaves, the bread of the first fruit, are these delicious, fresh, new grain, it says, and that you make into two loaves. Sorry, we're on, the, we're on 826, but now I'm kind of wandering around a little. That, that you make into two beautiful loaves. Karen has made beautiful loaves for us, which, since she's a pastry and baker person among her multitude of skills, um, which seems so right on Shavuot to have really beautiful challah, you know. And it says in verse 21, on that same day you shall hold a celebration. It shall be a sacred occasion for you. You shall not work at your occupations. This is a law for all time in all your settlements throughout the ages. Except that it doesn't say in the Torah what that day is on the calendar. And it becomes the 6th of Sivan, thanks to the rabbis. And then it says... And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I, the Eternal, am your God. I'm so fascinated that in what is a a completely ritual description of all these holidays in this chapter, this line has to be there that uh, it's so powerful to, again, if you're not familiar with this, and I may have talked about it many times, um, oh, we were talking about it last week when we talked about Kadoshi. Right, right, we were talking about it, that, uh, that 
in an agricultural society, if you have a field, you have means of production. If you don't, you're completely dependent uh, on the kindness of strangers. So um, it was their responsibility to make sure that everyone could gather, glean, and feed themselves, which is where the Book of Ruth comes in. Um, The Book of Ruth is this beautiful tale um, which begins, doesn't be, oh no, it doesn't begin in the time of the gleaning, uh, but Ruth is from Moab and, uh, and she, her, Naomi and her sons move to Moab and they meet, they marry Ruth and her sister, uh, is her name Machla? Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on the story today. We'll, I think we'll, we'll study it again soon. Uh, and uh, thus, Naomi returned from the country of Moab, and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, said, I don't want to go back to my family. I love you. And this famous line, do not urge me to leave you, to turn back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus and more may God do to me, if anything but death parts me from you. And who is that speaking? That's Naomi, Ruth, talking to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She doesn't want to go back. She wants to be with her. Ruth's sister's name is Orpah, which means the back of your neck. So Orpah (laughs) turns and returns. And Ruth says, Ruth comes from Reut, like which means friendship. That's what Ruth means. Uh, Naomi's, na- Naomi means my pleasure, which is why Naomi says when she comes back being widowed, being bereaved of her two sons, and they say, can this be Naomi when she arrives back in Bethlehem? She says, don't call me Naomi. She replied, call me Mara, which means bitterness. Her name, Naomi, means pleasantness. Uh, Naomi's son's names are um, machlon and chilion, which means sickness and illness. <laughs> Names in Torah are good that way. Right? It's a folk tale. It's a beautiful, deep folk tale. But the names are all meaningful. And Boaz, the, the, the beautiful kinsman, probably means has strength within. Boaz is filled with strength. Um, so, thus Naomi returned from the country of Moab. She returned with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabite. And they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So that's why this story gets associated with this piece of Torah, because when you reap the harvest of your land and Shavuot are all connected, even though this is the barley harvest, not the wheat harvest. And... Uh, in this story, Naomi, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, I would like to go to the fields and glean among the ears of grain behind someone who may show me kindness. Uh, the word for kindness, um, 
someone in whom I will find favor, who will so clearly, despite the commandment to leave, it, leave the corners and the gleanings, some landowners were more generous than others. So you wanted to go to the field where you were going to be able to actually glean enough to, to sustain yourself. And, uh, and yes, daughter, go, says Naomi, and off she went. She came and gleaned in a field behind the reapers, and as luck would have it, it was the piece of land belonging to Boaz, who was of Elimelech's family. Luck? Mikre, by chance. Mm-hmm. And presently Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, and he greeted the reapers and said, Adonai imachem, God be with you. And they responded, and God bless you. And Boaz said to the servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose girl is that? And the servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is a Moabite girl. She's a Moabite girl. In other words, she is the stranger. Leave them for the poor and the stranger. The stranger means the person who's not from here. Um, and uh, whose girl is that? She's a Moabite girl who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. She's been on her feet ever since she came this morning. She has rested but little in the hut. A love story is blossoming here. Boaz said to Ruth, listen to me, daughter. Don't go to glean in another field. Stay here, close to my girls. Keep your eyes on the field they are reaping and follow them. I have ordered the men not to molest you. And you are, when you're thirsty, go to the jars and drink some of the water that the men have drawn. And she prostrated herself with her face to the ground and said, Why are you so kind as to single me out when I am a stranger? Boaz said in reply, I have been told of all that you did for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in the land of your birth and came to a people you had not known before. May the Lord reward your deeds, and may you have a full recompense from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have sought refuge. She answered, You are most kind, my Lord, to comfort me and to speak gently to me, though I am not so much as one of your maidservants. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? It's so gracious compared to stuff. You know, it's just a beautiful story. And where is the Book of Ruth? The Book of Ruth is in the section of the Tanakh called The Writings, and it's one of the five Megillot, the five scrolls. The five Megillot are the one we know best, Esther, which is associated with Purim, um, Ecclesiastes, which is associated with Sukkot, um, uh, Echa, Lamentations, which is associated with Tisha B'Av, the Song of Songs, which is associated with Passover, and uh, Ruth, which is associated with Shavuot. So I think they get called the Five Scrolls because maybe they're each associated with a special holiday. I'm, I'm not sure. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Um, and each one has a theme or a tone or a link to the holiday that it gets assigned to. You know, Purim, obviously, the whole holiday is Purim. And so Esther's like Purim. But Song of Songs is because it's love poetry of springtime. And that's Passover. And then Ruth, clearly, because it's set in the season of the gleaning, and it's tied to um, uh, 
the people of Israel. You know, it's like it's our covenant with God at Mount Sinai, and that gets expressed in here. She wants to join our people. And then, of course, at the end of Ruth, it says that Ruth is the ancestor of King David, which is also fascinating. Uh, so it, it's um, not clear to me what the, what the connection necessarily of King David to Shavuot is, uh, uh, but um, it's still, it's a beautiful story. Ecclesiastes, because it's all about turn, 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 is the end of the harvest season, Sukkot, you know, moving into winter time. And Lamentations is a, written in the destruction of Jerusalem, and so it becomes the reading for Tisha B'Av. And so the latter books of the Bible, the, the writing section, not all of them have liturgical assignments. Uh, the Psalms is in the writing section. It gets a lot of liturgical assignments, obviously, but it's unique among those books because the other books, um, uh, Proverbs, Job, um, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles, none of them have any association with the liturgical calendar. The, the Torah portion of the week is associated with every Shabbat through the year. The Haftorah portions were instituted so that there'd be a liturgical reading of the, prophet, the prophets every week of the year. And then these books, these five scrolls, get associated with holidays during the year. Not necessarily. Um, they're placed um, in the latter part of the Bible, but we can't actually date them. It appears that Ecclesiastes is quite late, uh, like 2nd, 3rd century BCE, after the five books has been long canonized. Esther appears to be post-biblical, and the reason is because there's no mention of Purim in the Torah. So it's got to be, right? Or it would be in there. Um, so Ecclesiastes, Ruth, Ruth, people think, is quite old um, because of the biblical language it uses and uh, Christian Bibles, which put the books in a slightly different order, put Ruth right after... Um, right after the book of Judges, because that's the period it's happening in, and right before the book of Samuel, which is when David is born. So they stick it in there chronologically. But because it wasn't part of the prophetic books, it doesn't occupy, and the t Hebrew Bible is organized in Torah, prophets, and writings. It didn't get organized that way in Jewish Bibles. Um, and then Lamentations, we can pretty much date uh, to the time of Jeremiah, uh, which is probably similar to the time that the Bible, the, five, the Torah is getting fixed. Uh, and then, uh, what am I forgetting? <coughs> Song of Songs. Song of Songs, because of a lot of the Persian words in it, people think is later. Um, so, actually... Job is fairly early. Job? We don't know. Job appears to be 5th century, maybe, so it's not clear. Mm -hmm. 
Job didn't get a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Too depressing, but... <laughs> yeah. So, the thing, I remember from the other things you said, when you, that it says, I, 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 the eternal, am your God. That's when, you, when God's really serious. That's the most important thing. Well, well, it's the most important thing, but it's also when God speaks up when humans can't speak up for themselves. So, and this stranger, this person that, that is the one that, kept, that made, I mean, and David the shepherd, he, she was an ancestor, the stranger was the ancestor of David. Of David, right, which continues the theme of the Torah of the least among us, right, right? of don't rule out the least among us, the rabbis say it, there is no person that does not have their hour and no thing without its place in the sun. And that's from Pirkei Avot. And that's really, that's it. You know, the runt of the litter. David, we've talked about this. King David is the runt. And, uh, you know, there's this humorous scene where he can't even hold up the armor on his head to go fight Goliath because he's too shrimpy. And, uh, <laughs> and, We've, I don't know when we talked about this recently. It doesn't feel like that long ago. King Saul is selected by Samuel because he's head and shoulders taller than everybody. He has red hair, and you know, it's like. And uh, when God tells Samuel that David's the one, and Samuel protests, uh, God says to Samuel, "Do not humans judge people by their outer appearance? That's not what I do." It's this great line in the book of Samuel when David is. Uh, uh, when Samuel goes to see who the next king's going to be. So I think there's a consistent line through the Torah. Because we were slaves in Egypt, that makes one of the lines that makes Judaism special, important, that uh, you cannot ignore the least among us because you don't know who God has chosen. You know, the youngest child, the stranger, the... Yeah, I think that's really, really part of it. And so, because God is the protector of the poor and stranger. Look, when we just read in Ruth, Ruth doesn't have a protector. Boaz, out of the kindness of his heart, because he's that, because this is a story of kindness, uh, says, what you did for your mother-in-law needs to be repaid in turn. But... Ruth can't, all Ruth can do is prostrate herself up to the ground. She can't say, um, uh, this is my right. It's not. She doesn't have a right. She can, it doesn't exist in the Torah. And so whenever this kind of commandment is stated, it's because God wants, <coughs> it'll say, and I am, yod your God, because I am their redeemer. I redeemed you from Egypt, and I will redeem these people as well. And if you don't, I will, and you will find yourself basically out on your ass. And that's what God threatens Israel over and over with. If you do not fulfill these commandments, you will be kicked out of the good land I am giving you. Right? And you don't, own, you don't own the land. The land belongs to me. The Torah is very consistent in this way. And the longer I study it, the more, I, the more it becomes like the highlight lines just get bigger and bigger to me the longer I study it. You know, as you separate the, the wheat from the chaff here. Um, <laughs> that's cool. Um, and so, so that's how Ruth, the story of Ruth, gets associated with Shavuot and is supposed to be studied on Shavuot.
It's a beautiful story. Um, it's time for us to read it again. Maybe we'll read it on Shavuot this year. That'd be nice. That'd be very nice. Um, I hope you're enjoying this excursion. Uh, a field trip. <laughs> so then we'll go on for a few minutes, just a few more minutes. Leaving Shavuot for now, the, the, the calendar goes on, and the Eternal One spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelite people thus, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. True ah. Uh, you shall not work at your occupations, and you shall bring an offering by fire to the Eternal. Oh, oh, listen, I remember, before we, instead of getting into Rosh Hashanah, there, I remember that there was something else I wanted to show you about Shavuot, which is timely. But what I will say is notice that in the Torah, Rosh Hashanah happens in the seventh month. Now that's extremely significant, because seven is the day of rest, the year of rest, and the month of rest, the seventh month. And that's what happens. Right? You have Rosh Hashanah, and then you prepare for Yom Kippur, which is kind of like taking a giant mikvah to cleanse yourself. And then, at the full moon, you rejoice in your Sukkot for the, all the goodness that God has given you. And you do that for seven days. And then you're already up to the 21st day of the month uh, celebrating the harvest. So the seventh month even though it becomes the first month in diaspora, in Israel, the seventh month was a sabbatical month. That's what it was. That doesn't lessen its significance. It actually expands it, if you follow what I'm saying. Later in diaspora, that becomes the first month and the month by which we count the new year. But in this time, the seventh month, a month of festivals, is a month of Sabbaths. I think that's cool. I think that's cool and something to... To, something to remember. Uh, but in Deuteronomy, when Shavuot is described, no, no, not when Shavuot is described, um, where is Arami Oved Avi? My father was a wandering Aramean. It's in Shoftim, I think. Let me see if I can... Uh, is that where it is? Um, or is it in Ki... Tavo, it's in Kitavo, that's right. Um, take a look at page... Um, but that's where the first fruits is described, right? Right. The beginning of that look at page 1350, and we'll stick with Shavuot for the end of the class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there it is. Page 1350. Chapter 26. Vahayaki Tavo, and when you enter the land that eternal your God is giving you as a heritage, and you possess it and settle it, okay, you shall take some of every first fruit of the soil, which you harvest from the land that the eternal your God has given you, put it in a basket, and go to the place where the eternal your God will choose to establish the divine name. You shall 
Go to the priest in charge at that time and say to him, I acknowledge this day before the Eternal your God that I have entered the land that the Eternal swore to our fathers to assign to us. Now, if you'll note, in, in the description back in the chapter we're doing, it says, when you enter the land that I am giving you and you reap its harvest, you shall bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. Right? So Leviticus and Deuteronomy are lined here. This is like, you do this when you're in the land. But here it's a much bigger description. Because here, instead of describing all the offerings that you're supposed to make, it's an actual liturgy, something that you recite and you say, the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down in front of the altar of the eternal your God. And you shall then recite as follows before the eternal your God. My father was a fugitive Aramean. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there. But there he became a great and very populous nation. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us. They imposed heavy labor upon us. We cried to the Eternal, the God of our ancestors, and the Eternal heard our plea and saw our plight, our misery, and our oppression. The Eternal freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, an awesome power, and by signs and portents, bringing us to this place and giving us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. There's the cheesecake. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Wherefore, I now... That's a better story than Judith cutting off <laughs> Holofernes' head. Wherefore, I now bring the first fruits of the soil to you, which you, Eternal One, have given me. And you shall leave it before the Eternal your God and bow low before the Eternal God, and you shall rejoice to get and enjoy, together with the family of the Levite and the stranger in your midst, all the bounty that the Eternal your God has bestowed on you and your household. Beautiful passage, isn't it? Now, some of you will recognize where you know this from. Arami Oved Avi, the Haggadah, right? This, this is the traditional Passover Haggadah. Um, and the whole Haggadah, as we've discussed in the past, is built on these lines. Uh, there'll be the line from this text, uh, and we cried out to God, and God heard our cry, or Vayareo Otana Hamitzrim, and the Egyptians oppressed us greatly, and then it'll have, and put upon us harsh labor, and then comes all the traditional Haggadah that follows. It's fascinating to me that the rabbis chose this passage, and we've talked about this, we won't have time to explore today. Um, but, but the idea that this was something people would be taught to recite. Taught is, to recite, oh, really that's right, we were assuming, I remember when we talked about this, that for us, why are they doing these verses? But for them, they all knew these verses. This was like the annual recitation that you bring. And so the rabbis built the Haggadah as a teaching text around the, the recitation that every Jew knew in ancient Israel because they went on pilgrimage and then it was their job to know these phrases and but recite them. It's interesting that here it's, it's situated for, for Shavuot, whereas we, you know, the rabbis put it into... Pesach. Pesach. But he, that's right. That's right. And that, that's it what, tells, in, in a few sentences, tells the story of the It tells the whole story. So this was how, there's a reason to assume, a good reason to assume, that this piece of ancient 
recitation was taught throughout the generations because you were supposed to go to the temple and bring your basket, the priest would take it, and then you would, it says, va'anita, va'amarta. La'anot is to, um, is both, you know, la'anot is to answer, but it also means to answer um, when someone gives you a line. It's responsive. So I'm imagining that there's a whole, I'm imagining there's a whole bunch of pilgrims who've come upon Shavuot, brought their basket, and then the priest gives them the line, and they answer responsibly, because it has va'anita. Anita could also mean to sing, because it says, and Mir- or, but Miriam and all the women went out, and they were, but was it a call and response? I think anita means call and response. And so I picture this as a vivid scene of pilgrims saying this as a declaration of identification, with the Jewish enterprise and the sacred story. And so um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. And that's a description of the first fruits. Again, not associated with a date here, a date and time, but which the rabbis then all roll into what becomes the sixth of Sivan. Yes? So um, I hadn't talked much about the Omer this Omer, so I wanted to do that today. Any other thoughts or questions? Or... Well, thank you. Thank you for letting me to do that. <laughs>